Amen. Please be seated. And please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 9. I have the insert in the bulletin with the text there for you. We come to the last half now of chapter 9, the end of the account of Noah. Some 20 to maybe even 50 years, 20 to 50 years have elapsed since Noah left the ark with his family and the animals began that process of repopulating the new a renewed earth. Now the story before us isn't there, or it's not in its place simply to shock us, because the story is pretty shocking, but it's really uh, meant to inform us on a couple levels. Now I want you to think first of the initial audience for Genesis, who would have been the first people to read Genesis. Moses is writing probably in the wilderness, after Israel has been re, uh, saved from Egypt, and now they're waiting to inherit the promised land. The problem with the promised land, and they're aware of this, is that there are occupants in the promised land that have to be defeated, the Canaanites. The Canaanites were wicked people, the enemies of God and everyone around them, and they were a fierce people too, and so the Israelites, who had just been rescued from slavery, are regrouping, if you will, Moses is receiving God's word, and part of that word is to explain the background for all mankind. But narrowing in this passage, the last half of chapter 9, you have the origins of Canaan, which becomes important because, as you might know, Canaan becomes a major adversary for Israel going forward as the Bible unfolds. So that's the immediate reason for Moses recording this, we would assume. The Holy Spirit gives him this information. It helps us understand why it's here. But there's more for us to learn, for sure. The bigger picture is that this contributes to God's unfolding promise of redemption through the seed who would come to crush the head of the serpent, the second Adam who would come to save us from our sins under the first Adam. That's how this story plugs in. The promises of God's grace are renewed here. Also, we can see on a basic level, the sinfulness that Noah had, that we share, we can see where that leads. We also get a sense of the grace of God on a personal level. Much here for us, we should not be surprised, this is the dynamic, living, and active word of God. So here as I read, Genesis 9, 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, 
the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, you have shown us so much of your grace through the person of Noah, upon Noah, through Noah, to Noah. Yet, we recognize that Noah, like his father, his father before him, sinned. And his son sinned. Sin and grace, grace and sin. Our sin and your grace. Some things will not change entirely, Lord. We recognize this until Jesus returns. Help us by the ministry of your spirit to understand this passage. Help us to apply the truth that we learn today. Elevate our view of you, O God, that we might worship you by what we say and by what we do. pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I mentioned to you that the passage was initially written with the Israelites in mind who would have to conquer the promised land where the Canaanites live. So this is a bit of the origin from where the Canaanites came. It's meant also to reorient the reader, you and I, to God's plan that's unfolding to bring forth the seed, the enmity enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that plays out among the Canaanites and the Israelites eventually, the Israelites coming from Shem. I would also like for you at the onset to consider, while it's fresh in your mind through Genesis, some of the parallels that we see between Adam and Noah. Remember, this is the other side of the flood, living in a fallen world, but the Lord starts things afresh to some degree to continue his plan. The flood didn't wash away sin, we know that, but the flood provided for more of an opportunity of the display of God's holiness and a chance for further explanation of his graciousness, an unfolding of the plan of his preserving of the seed. But think of Adam and then think of Noah. You remember the earth was created and he separated the waters from the deep. And from that, Adam is placed on the earth. Noah, now taking his place on the earth after the water transformed the globe, the flood. Adam was made a steward of creation. So was Noah, refreshed in this role of stewardship, this role for mankind. Adam was blessed and told to multiply. So was Noah. Adam had three sons of note. So did Noah. Adam was placed in the garden to tend and to keep it. Noah was a man of the soil who tended and kept his own garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. Noah also sinned in his garden. The sin of Adam left him naked, ashamed, and exposed. So did the sin of Noah. Adam's nakedness was covered by someone else. So was Noah's. Adam's sin brought a curse, but it also was the occasion for God to pronounce the ultimate blessing of the seed that would come to be our Savior. Noah's sin revealed a curse, but was also the occasion for a renewal of God's commitment to work out this enmity between the seeds, ultimately bringing forth Christ. Adam and Noah, the stories of sin, man's sin, and God's grace. What's your story? Because that's my story too.
my sin in his saving grace. My sin in his sustaining grace. My sin in his persevering, persevering grace. Remember this important truth that unfolds here and throughout the rest of our trek through the Bible. The devastating effects of our sins, your sin and my sin. We can't underestimate this. It can't be understated how severe it is. But at the same time, the benefits of the grace of God cannot be overstated. This is why Paul responds as he thinks of the whole of God's unfolding plan when he writes to the Romans. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let's look at the passage and we see this to be the case early on. Again, in the life of Noah, so much of Genesis has been dedicated to God's work through Noah. And we see in him and we see in his son Ham how sin has the effect of compounding and complicating. This is always true of sin in general. It's true here, and it's part of a bigger picture as we see it unfold. Now, when we consider Noah in this situation that we have just read of, we are recognizing once again that there is only one hero in Scripture. It's not Noah. It's Christ himself. He's the only one. But Noah is held in such high regard leading into this. A spiritual giant, no doubt. That's reaffirmed in the New Testament that he is that. Yet he possessed a corrupted nature. He's a bit of a picture of the walking contradiction that is every one of us, even when we're born again. If he could fall into sin, Noah could fall into sin. Any one of us can. We're just happy that it hasn't been inscripturated for the generations to read about after. God placed his favor upon Noah early. Remember when he was just born, his father said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. From the beginning, there was something different about Noah because of the grace of God upon him. This is why in Genesis 6, verse 8, against the backdrop of a completely corrupt earth, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This is a commendation that only Jesus gets. Nobody gets the kind of commendation that Noah does. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The grace of God was upon Noah. And Noah performed well because of the grace of God. A refrain that happens often while he's building the ark and he's obeying God through the flood and then after the flood. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him, Genesis 6.22. Now, back to our passage. Let's see what happens. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Now, what would you do after a hundred years of building an ark? A whole year at sea, if you will? What do you do to pick up life again? He becomes a man of the soil, an honorable vocation. And he planted a vineyard, an honorable enterprise. He drank of the wine. No problem yet with anything we're reading. And I want to emphasize that because I know that in some Christian tradition, especially American tradition, much is made of wine and such. And we should recognize the gifts that God gives. Anything that you see Noah doing to this point, there's no issue with it. In fact, the psalmist is reflecting on all the great gifts of God in Psalm 104. Referring to the flood itself, listen to how the psalmist unfolds this. He, God, set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. 
At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he, in cultivating, may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Noah is a steward of the earth here. And as the text said, he planted a vineyard and drank of the wine. Now, we know this is sometime after the ark landed, several years. My father, the good Sicilian that he was, planted a vineyard. He thought it would be quicker than it was. I didn't know any better at the time, but he built the house in 1971. I came back from college before he picked the first grapes in 1991. So it's 20 to 40 plus years after that this is happening. No issue with what he's doing. It's honorable what he's doing. Jesus made wine, Jesus drank wine, Jesus served wine, and Jesus will drink wine with us in the new heaven and the new earth. The problem isn't the vineyard or the wine. The problem is what comes next. Verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk. And then there's always an and after he became drunk. Because it's the and that compounds the sin. That's what sin does. The first sin is drunkenness, and then it compounds. He became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. It's not that the laid uncovered wasn't in itself a sin. It just exposed that he had sinned. He was out of control of his faculties. He did something he could not rectify, and he lay there exposed. So anyone who would see him would know he's drunk. They would recognize he had sinned in that way. So there's shame upon him now, and there's nothing he can do about it because he can't control his faculties. His faculty to reason is gone. He's intoxicated now. He's out of control of his actions. And that's what sin does. It compounds. But if there's any sin that compounds itself and then spreads to other sins, it's that of drunkenness or being high or being stoned or whatever you want to call it. Out of control of your ability to exercise self-control and restraint. This is a definite example of how sin compounds and complicates. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. There is Noah, the, the human savior of creation, had to be held in high esteem by any who knew that's the Noah because by this time the earth is starting to repopulate. That's the Noah. And now he's drunk, out cold, and naked. So drunk that he can't control himself enough to get up and get dressed. There he lay. Now, at this point, the sin is private. He's in his own tent. Now, the tents were more like wall tents you could stand up in, sort of bedroom size. Normally, at least that's how uh, they were known to be in the ancient Near East. But there he is laying in his tent naked because he had been drunk. And we see what occurs. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan. Notice the reference to Canaan. Again, that's for the audience who would have heard Genesis first. It helps us too, of course. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. So he recognizes as he goes by the tent, he can see through and he can see his father's state. He knows his father's state like that must mean that something's happened. Maybe he's hurt or injured. Or maybe he's drunk. And he finds out quickly enough, probably evidence around, that he is drunk. He sees what his father has done. And the situation starts to compound. He saw the nakedness of his father. He didn't cover his father at this point. He didn't wait till his father came to and talked to his father about the sin he committed. He sees this, and he told his two brothers outside. Now, we have to surmise at this point that there is already a tension between Noah and Ham. 
you can surmise, and it's not just me, the commentators will note, there was something clearly building with those two. And some commentators go as far as to say, Ham did not like his father. He despised his father in some way. Really, by extension, maybe despise the God of his father. Now, before we jump ahead and think this is a situation where, let's say, a 50-year-old is arguing with one of his three sons, that's not what we're talking about here. This is a 600-year-old arguing with his several hundred-year-old sons who helped probably construct the ark over the course of a century, were on it for a year. There's opportunity for a lot of tension. And I don't, young people, whatever chores you have around the house, they ain't what Shem, Japheth, and Ham had. And so there's tension, real tension. Noah clearly would make mistakes as a father like every sinning father does. But there's something here now brewing that comes to this point that it just flows out of the passage. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two sons. Now, in a way to publicize what was private up to that point, to show his father's sin and his shame. He wants to share it with his sons. He wants to bring down his father's, uh, the estimation of their father in their minds. And he wants to bring disunity to the family. He wants to bring strife to the family. He wants to get one or both of them to be opposed to their father. You know, you could tell a lot about a person by what they say when someone falls, by who they say it to, what their intention is. We learn a lot about Ham and what he does when he sees his father in this state of shame. Ham saw the nakedness of his father, verse 22, and told his two brothers outside. He takes the opportunity to multiply the shame upon his father. Ham here, in his primary sin, is dishonoring his father. Now, you might say, now wait a minute, look at all that unfolds. You're telling me that simply dishonoring, disrespecting, shaming his father is enough for that. And the reason that we pause and ask that question is we have fallen so low in our appreciation for the holiness of God that we think that. Holiness of God, wait, pastor, you're talking about the son disrespecting his father. When God gives the commandments under Moses, the commandment, which is fifth in the line of the ten, is meant to display something not about parents and children. It's ultimately about God. He says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. God establishes an authority structure that will help us follow God, be faithful to God. And it starts at the human level with parents to children. And it's so critical that in the law of Moses, there were certain occasions that if you disrespected or disobeyed your parents, you could be put to death. So that's part of the reason why the commandment says that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God has given to you. But it's also just a practical reality that God has gifted you with parents, fallen as they may be, just like Noah. He's given you these parents with a wisdom you can't have with the years you have. And so by giving you these parents and obeying them and honoring them and respecting them, you have opportunity to avoid a lot of pitfalls in this life that's coming at you. You have a much better chance of living a longer life, just practically speaking, by following what God has given you to follow. You know, the sin of drunkenness is serious in the passage, no doubt, but that's not the most serious sin. It's the disrespecting and the dishonoring of Noah on the part of Ham. That's where the real gross sin is. It's a wicked sin, a wicked sin 
according to the way God treats it when it unfolds in the rest of Scripture. We have to do a check about how we honor our parents. And this isn't just to young people. This is to everyone who has a parent, dead or alive. So that's everyone. And God calls us to consider his order to these things. Why is it so important? How is this about the holiness of God? Well, if we can't honor our parents, who God has given us, God-ordained authority, we won't honor any authority that God's given us. And a reckless person is the person who brings the most kind of chaos, the kind of people that lived, that caused the flood. So it starts at the level of honoring our parents. A person who can't honor their parents won't honor their employer or their coach or their governor or any other people that God has placed in human authority over us. It's a divine institution that he does this, parenting first. It tells a whole lot about someone, and we see it unfold in Ham. We see it unfold in society from Ham. We are desensitized because of such a low view of God's holiness and appointed authority that we think this is a little harsh for just disrespecting your dad. It's a wicked sin, a wicked sin that he is partaking in. The Proverbs say, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. That's the words of scripture about how serious it is. All of it takes into account that your parents are sinners. We parents are sinners. It's still God's appointed authority and at the basic level, Ham is violating this at a really critical time in the growth of the new repopulating earth. Our shorter catechism does a great job of recognizing something about the fifth commandment. When we say the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, we kind of say and pass by it pretty quickly as we're teaching children and such, and we just take it for granted almost. But when they were writing the catechism questions, they recognized for us the wider application of what that simple commandment about obeying human appointed, not just any human authority, but authority appointed by God. And listen to the answers that are given, because you'd think it'd be a lot simpler. Well, honor your father and your mother, just Respect them, obey them, that kind of thing. But listen to how it unfolds when some analysis applied to the fifth commandment. What is required in the fifth commandment? The answer, the fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, and equal. It's recognized that God gives certain orders of authority that we should honor. It's wicked when we don't. What is forbidden in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment forbids the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their several places and relations. You see what they're doing. They're, they're rightly explaining. It's, the fifth commandment goes beyond parents. It goes beyond a person's ability to submit to what God has placed. The 66th question, what is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? I'm so glad there are people that lived in a time that asked these many questions. And better that they could come up with the answers biblically. The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment. So now I think we can appreciate at least a little more the seriousness of Ham's sin. We can also notice how he angled to have his brothers disrespect their father too, compounding and complicating it. It says... He saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. He's trying to bring a rebellion against Noah of sort. Now let's pause for a moment. We've been exposed to two sins that compound and complicate. Drunkenness compounds and complicates. Dishonoring our parents will do the same. It might even make us have a shorter life. 
So we pause well to do well to elevate our respect for the parents God has given us. Our parents are sinners too, so we have to be careful not to expose them to further sin by how we treat them. We, have to, we don't follow them when they tell us to sin, but we respect the fullness of what God has done by giving us parents. This has to do with how we speak to our parents and about our parents. This has to do with how we obey our parents if we are at such an age. This has to do with respecting our parents, honoring them, upholding the dignity of our parents, especially as they get older. This has to do with honoring God's appointed human authority in our life. And please notice I have not been directing this application only at young people. This is for all of us. You might say, well, I don't have a parent anymore. They're gone. Well, we can still honor them by how we speak of them and draw from them those things that clearly were of God because there's something there. You could say, but they weren't honorable. They were awful. That may be the case. I don't mean to inflict pain by saying what I'm saying. But there's no reason then in that light even to continue to expose them, even their memory, to constant shame about it. There may be need personally to work through that, but as far as always saying and exposing it further, that would be going too far. Timothy was a young pastor, and Paul was writing to kind of warn him about many things, but especially how we would know we're in the last days, how you know that things are really getting bad. And the description is kind of surprising when you think of the things we think are bad. He said, understand this, Paul, writing to Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Now, we've been dealing with Noah and Ham here. Let's look at verse 23. We'll see how the brothers, the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, what they do when Ham tries to draw them into shaming their father and exposing his sin further. Verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. So their response wasn't to take that bait. They took a garment together and they laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards. So they know he's sinned. They believe what Ham said. They know their father's sin. And they know he's laying there in shame. They can't do anything to change that but they don't have to participate in it further. They don't have to complicate it more. They don't have to make it radiate further. And so they take up this garment to cover. And as they back into the tent, their faces, it says in the part, last part of verse 23, their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. They recognized even though their father was a sinner and he had shame upon him, their father was their appointed father from God. And they were not going to bring further shame on who God had appointed. They were not going to be drawn into the disrespect that Ham was trying to stir up. They weren't interested in a rebellion against God. It wasn't just their father. And this is what Ham clearly wanted to incite. So we see in this passage how sin compounds and complicates in these verses without question. I mean, it's just so obvious and we know it's true in our own lives what sin does and how it unravels, it unfolds, it grows, it multiplies, it draws more people in, it makes things more complicated, more awkward, it radiates, from, it radiates out from us. Look at this case, how it unfolds. Noah's drunkenness garners disrespect. Noah's drunkenness then puts him in, in danger, personally. Could have been worse. 
Noah's drunkenness put others in danger. Noah's drunkenness defamed his God. Noah's drunkenness created the possibility for more sin, which was realized, at least in part. Now Ham compounds Noah's sin by exposing him and respecting his fa- and disrespecting his father, trying to incite strife and division, sinning more. Ham's sinful, disrespectful actions could have caused great family disunity. It definitely etched in the disunity that was there between him and his brothers, but it could have made it much worse because sin compounds. It always does. It complicates situations and relationships and circumstances. But the actions of Shem and Japheth are to be noted and commended. This, this action counters. It, it stops the extension of the sin that was private at the very beginning and became public. Now, it needed to be confronted, but it could have been in that moment. Instead, Ham tries to extend it. But what we have here in verse 23 they take this garment, they back in, they cover their father. You know, there's some passages in the scripture that really speaks to this kind of activity in a vivid way, the activity of Shem and Japheth. Proverbs 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, that's Ham, but love covers all offenses, Shem and Japheth, quite literally. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love. That's Shem and Japheth. Now, covers doesn't mean you forget and act like they never sin. It means to stop the shame that's radiating from that situation. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. That's Ham. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In some cases, that means when there are small sins that occur and someone may be immature in the faith, whatever the case, we cover those with love. It also could mean we know there are sins in our body. We don't need to keep sharing that with everyone, multiplying that, complicating that. That's covering sins with a multitude. We love each other enough to know we all have shame in our lives. We don't need to broadcast it to everybody to bring ourselves up and bring them down. Now, let's look at this passage and it's big picture that it's being expressed that will speak to the Israelites who first received this, but it speaks to us today, this side of the coming of Christ. I would suggest to you that the passage has like two slices of bread on either side, the grace of God. And then in the middle is the sin that's complicating. So the first slice of bread would be verse 18 and verse 19, back at the beginning. How is this so? You remember Noah is shown the grace of God. It's God's grace that's the underlying driver of this story. It's not Noah's faithfulness or his obedience. It's the persevering grace of God, the persistent grace of God. Even the prophecy about Ham and Canaan is not the thrust of the story. It's what drives this history forward. God's grace remains despite our shortcomings. In our, the effects of our sin can't be understated, but the benefits of God's grace can't be overstated. Verse 18 and verse 19, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right there, fulfilled promise. I preserved you in the ark as I had promised so many years before. And now the ark opens and you go forth to repopulate the earth. Verse 18. Verse 19 says, these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. God's grace realized as he preserves humanity so that the seed could come. It was God's grace that picked Noah. 
It was God's grace that gave Noah the revelation necessary for him to know he needs to build an ark. God's judgment's coming. It was God's grace that gave Noah the wisdom and the influence to get this ark built, to have the animals in place, to be on the ark, to be preserved in the ark, to live on that ark for a whole year. The preservation of God in his grace came through the wisdom he gave to Noah. It's the grace of God that brings the ark safe. It opens it up and moves in Noah's heart so that he would worship God. Reeling is it's all God's grace. That's the point of his worship. And I need a sacrifice, and he sacrifices. Calls God's attention to the gracious promises he has made. All of this is realized as that ark lands, his family is safe, and the animals go forth, and the repopulation starts. But then we have verse 24 through 27, the other side, the other piece of bread. It's still about God's grace. Even the acknowledgement of the curse upon Ham. I want to be clear about that language, too. It's he's acknowledging a curse upon him. Noah's not pronouncing as a witch doctor would a curse because he's mad at his son for embarrassing him. No, it's a sad father realizing the character of Ham. It was shown in what just happened. And it's true his drunkenness was an awful thing. And he's sad for that on the other side of waking from his drunkenness. And what's saddest is that Ham, in his future, through his son Canaan in particular, will ultimately be the servants of the other two sons. And it will be a painful thing. He's acknowledging what has evidenced itself in the person of Ham and is typified by what he did to his father. That's what Noah recognizes. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, you could picture this guilt, awaking to see what he has done, what he's put his family through by his sin, regretful, no doubt, about what he's done. There's no indication anywhere at all Noah lost his faith. He's a, he's a believer who fell into sin. That feeling you have when you know it's true and you come out of that and you have clear eyes, in this case literally because he was drunk, and he realizes what had happened, it just accentuates in his mind what the future is for his son. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, curse be Canaan. Canaan, a servant of servants shall be, he shall be to his brothers. He's just calling out what is true. He's forecasting what will be the case. And notice how it's not a personal on him, it's just a recognition. This kind of shows he's just recognizing the future. And as a father laments it, because Canaan is the fourth son of, of Ham, and he's mentioning Canaan. That's what the nation will be named after, who the Israelites will have to deal with. Who are the Israelites? They're the sons of Shem. He, a father recognizing the will of God in understanding it's God's will, but nevertheless lamenting in speaking about this curse to Ham. He just recognizes these things, being Noah who he is. Franz Dalich, one of the great commentators of the Bible, he wrote this about this episode. Noah, through the spirit and power of that God with whom he walked, discerned the moral nature of his sons and the different tendencies which they already displayed, the germinal commencement of the future course of their, pos their posterity, their children, their houses, and uttered words of blessing and curse which were prophetic of the history of the tribes that descended from them. It unfolds as he says it will along the lines of these individuals. Situation brings out the character of Ham. Noah knows it and he speaks it. But there's a blessing that he speaks of too, a forecast. And I want you to pay so close attention to the wording. Again, this is not a priest saying, by my power I pronounce blessing upon Shem. Please pay a close attention to what he speaks next. 
He said also, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. I got no blessings. But Shem is going to be blessed. He will be the father of Israel. He'll be, from him will come Abraham. From him will come Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. From them will come David and from them will come Christ. The seed finally. Blessed be the God of Shem. I know the fate of Ham. I see where this is going. But blessed be you, God, that you're not leaving us to fall under Ham's way. You're continuing your promise to send the seed. Bless you, God, the God of Shem. It's through Shem that you're going to bring the seed. And he's giving praise to God while speaking, forecasting what God will do. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. Now he's including Japheth, who's not immediately in the line of Israel. But we'll see through the unfolding of Scripture how eventually, through the one who comes from Shem, all people of the earth have opportunity to turn back to the God of Shem, the God of Abraham, our God. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Some say this is a bit of a forecast of Israel and the Gentiles in the ultimate way God will fulfill these things. Noah knows from where all blessings flow. Noah, in the state of humiliation, he's rightly down about things. In this state, he knows for whom all blessings are to bring glory. God remembers his grace and rescues again with his grace. God's actions through Noah are primarily preservative. God is preserving his character by not forgetting his covenant. He is also preserving the seed that he promised would eventually come. Remember back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Bible will start to unfold as we move along between these two seeds again. Canaan will represent one part of that, and of course, Israel the other. Now, it's not to say every member of Israel and every member of Canaan, that every member of Israel is saved and every member of Canaan is not. It all depends on how they eventually relate to the seed that will come through Israel. This enmity, though, we'll see unfold in the Old Testament story for sure. Millennia would unfold with this battle between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman the devastating effects of our sin can't be understated. The Bible pulls no punches. It puts it all out there for us. It doesn't let us think Noah is this unassailable hero. He's not. God used him in a great way. But it's God who gets the praise. Thankfully, though our sin cannot be understated, there's no way for me, no matter how hard I try, to overstate the grace of God shown to you. So, in conclusion, what about Noah? How about Noah? I'm so thankful that the last real description of Noah, especially the words he spoke, because his words are only recorded here in all that we've read about Noah, only time we hear him speak. I'm so glad that those last words were to bless God, to bless God for his gracious covenant promises, to bless him for who he is. That's where we leave him. And if this happened 30 to 50 years after the ark landed, it says in verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. So that means about 300 more years from the time he uttered these words. He went on with his life, just as a normal person, doing the work that God had given his hands. The record of Noah ends up being no different than any one of yours 
Not, no different than my record. Look at verse 29. Other than the length of days, it sounds really familiar. All the days of Noah were 950 years in his case, and he died. And he died. That will be said of every one of us here, lest the Lord comes first. And he died. And she died. These were the days of Tony, however long they were. They won't be long. They aren't for anybody, not for real. Even the oldest among us won't be as old as any one of these guys. There were a hundred when they started building the ark. You ain't living that long. None of us are. And you'll die. That's, that's the truth of it. But the message of Scripture is that we have hope, while that be true, outwardly, we have hope because God ends up fulfilling his bringing of the seed who gives us eternal life. We die physically, which is just after a short period of time on this earth. And then we're alive and under Christ while we're alive, if we're so blessed. And I hope you are so blessed that you have turned to the second Adam. You don't live under the first Adam any longer. You know you're going to die physically. You know spiritually you're going to live somewhere forever. And so you want to be with him. Blessed be the God of Shem. So you go to the God of Shem. And how does the God of Shem say you should respond? Believe on the seed. Believe on the Messiah that I sent for you. Rest in him. Rest in Christ the chosen one, the anointed one, the second Adam, be found in him. And this whole story points us that direction so that though it's true, and he died, and then we live, and we live forever unto the new heavens and the new earth that will be recreated better than what we see here after the flood is restored. All of this awaits the people of God, and the scripture gives this promise to us through and through. This is the unfolding of God's program of grace that we're studying right now. The first declaration started with Adam and Eve. It's heralded through Noah, then through Abraham, then through Moses, then through David and the prophets, and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And the apostles give us a reinforced witness of this by the Spirit's testimony. Let us pray. Lord, we witness in this passage the end of Noah's days. The end of his earthly days but not the end of Noah. In what full days you gave him indeed on the earth. We witness a sinner who you gifted with faith. We witness a sinner who has pointed us to the Savior, even through his weakness and sin. Blessed be you, O Lord, the God of Shem, the God of Terah, the God of Abraham, our God. You, O Lord, who are our God and Savior through the seed that you brought forth, the second Adam, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name, for your glory, that we might know you and worship you better. Amen. Let's together respond by turning to 146. 146 is break thou the bread of life. We'll stand.